The sermon text is 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 2 to 16. I am going to start in verse 1, though. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook of Cherith, that is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent. The jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Father, we come before you today, and we're thankful for your word, and we're thankful for the gift of your word. I pray we would never take it for, uh, of advantage of it. I pray that we will never take it for granted. And I ask that even now as we uh, uh, turn to it, that you would make the book live that uh, you would make us alive to it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we saw last week when we uh, introduced this book of uh, uh, First Kings and the life of Elijah, Elijah appeared almost out of nowhere and had a word for Ahab the king. Almost as suddenly now, he disappears in verse 2. And uh, I think it's safe to assume that just as God had explicitly commanded now in verse 2, Elijah to go into hiding, that in verse 1, when he speaks to Ahab, that God had explicitly commanded Elijah to go with a word to Ahab. These are the Bible's words, not mine. You'll find them in verse 3, that the Lord said to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. I think it's important for us to understand here that 
as we enter into this section now, Elijah was not running out of fear. He did not go into hiding because he thought somehow that Ahab and Jezebel were going to come after him. Rather, he was obeying God when God told him to go and hide by the brook. I think many people can look at this text as we will at uh, chapter 19. And they might understand or think that somehow Elijah has entered into God's witness protection program. Clearly, uh, Ahab and Jezebel are not thrilled with him. The word that he spoke to them was not a great word. They were going to experience famine in the land. And it seems that that happened almost right away. And as you read these accounts in 1 Kings, you recognize that Jezebel had terminal, design, terminal designs on all of God's prophets. And were it not for the quick thinking of Obadiah, who hid uh, two groups of 50 prophets in caves, and the providence of God's hand on other men in the land, Elijah would have been the last prophet standing, and she would have loved to have dispatched him as well. So Elijah needed to go off grid. He needed to get away from Ahab and Elijah. And God had just the spot for him. He had a secluded creek above the Jordan. And as, he will, as we will see of all places, Zarephath as well. This brookside retreat that God sent him to initially was out of sight. The city of Zarephath, the widow's home, was in plain sight. What we will see is certainly God does know how to protect his own. We'll come back to this because I'm not sure if that's the only way or the best way to read this text. I think as we read this text also, as we're beginning to kind of dive into it, um, sometimes we look at uh, biblical uh, characters, those that God records there, and we would really like to be a lot like them, and we'd like to pattern our life after them, and we'd like to think that if we do what they did, then God will do for them, or God will do for us what he did for them. We think, okay, here's Elijah. If I stand for God, if I speak for God, uh, if I put my life on the line for God, that God will miraculously protect me and remove me from harm, take me somewhere, and he'll provide me with bread and with meat, and he'll keep me safe from all alarm. That would be a wonderful application of this text to think that that's the way that God worked. A wonderful example of God's provision and God's care for one who faced desperate circumstances. I wonder though if it's correct for us to say that this text is giving us a principle along the lines, if you trust God and if you serve God, then things will go well for your life. We can all be Elijah's. We can have safety and security and food. You do your part, God will do his part. I serve God, I obey God, I stand for God, and God will look after me. I'm no, not so sure that this is the point of this text, nor am I so sure that this is the thrust of Scripture. Why don't we, when we read a text like this and the rest of Kings, identify ourselves with the two groups of 50 prophets that were living in two caves that didn't know if the person that would poke their head in the front of the cave was there to give us water and food or was there to kill us? Why don't we identify with the remnant of Israel, the faithful remnant of Israel that was living under the reign and rule of Jezebel and Ahab, those who were watching their cattle starve and their crops fail and their children suffer horribly because of the famine. How is it that we can look at a text like this and can look to God and presume that the road for 
us as God's highway and his provision and his care and not see how also the low road may be God's path for us. It's easy, I think, to identify with the prophet Elijah and not with the common folk of Israel. God's prophet receives particular care, but God's people suffer the ravages and deprivation of God's temporal judgment on Ahab and all the apostates. In other words, why should we expect to bypass suffering and hardship? I think we need to learn from Scripture and adopt attitudes and responses like Job, who when he lost everything, worshipped the Lord. and said, naked I came from the womb and naked I will go. Why is it that we don't think of ourselves as the apostle Paul did where he says, I have learned contentment. I have learned how to be content with plenty and I have learned to be content in want. How do you learn contentment? You learn it by trusting in God. And Jesus said to Peter, did he not, at the end of John as Peter is uh, kind of wondering, why is it that it seems like John is going to live a wonderful life? And Jesus' words to him were along the lines to him, If it is my will for him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So as we look at a text like this, it's important to learn from these people and to observe their lives, but it's not necessarily helpful for us to say, that's what God has exactly in store for me, because we're individuals. Regardless of God's way with us, whether it's the highway or the low way, whether it's God's protection or whether it's suffering, under God's judgment on the land, conformity is still never an option. When we come to this particular text, I don't know if you noticed when Derek read it, the references to the word of God. It is um, riddled with references to the word of God and God speaking. It's central to this particular text. It, it should be impossible for us to read verses 2 to 16 and to um, not notice the fact that I think the writer is making a point that God still speaks, that God still commands, that his word is still powerful and effective. You can look at verse 2 and 8. And there we read in both times that the word of the Lord came to Elijah. You can look at verses 4 and 9 and twice you can read how God commanded. First he commanded the ravens and then he commanded the widow. You can read in verse 5 how all this happened according to the word of the Lord. You can read in verse 14 how it says, thus says the Lord. You can read in verse 16 how all of this took place according to the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is a central feature of verses 2 to 16. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. That's a wonderful, wonderful reminder of the living word of God speaking to God's men and women. It's an incredible word of comfort. It's a reminder to us that we don't have to walk in this world silently or fidgeting or trying to find our way somehow. Uh, it's like we struggle in a dark room. God speaks to us. When we don't know what to do, where we don't know where to go, we listen and we wait and God will speak to us. He does, he has, and he will. And when we find ourselves in trouble, sometimes it's because we have been impatient, presumptuous, or overconfident, rather than waiting for God to speak. The word is so clear, it's so encouraging. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. We sing that song, don't we? Word of God, speak. 
Is that how you come to the word of God when you read it every day? Word of God, speak. The word of the Lord came to him. So I wonder sometimes, though we read a text like this, and we should ask ourselves, well, does God still speak and direct his children today? Does God still speak to you and I today? Does the word of God still come to Paul? Absolutely it does. Though very infrequently, audibly, but with greater certainty through the written word of God that we have before us. Reading the word of God is still equivalent to God's voice speaking to us. Uh, as the prophet Jeremiah says, that the word of God comes behind us saying, this is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. In other words, God's word still guides, it still directs, it still speaks to the very specific situations that you and I face in our life. How does he do it? He does it through his word, which is the living word of God. As we read it, he impresses it upon our lives. He speaks to us through his spirit. He brings conviction to us. He brings a principle to us. He reminds us of what is his will for us and what is pleasing to him. And when we hit those circumstances in the road and all of a sudden we lose peace and we're full of a, full of a lack of confidence, then we ought to stop and say, hmm, I wonder if the direction that I'm going is actually the direction in which God is leading me. But I do believe that as we open the word of God and as we ask God to speak to us through his word, he does in other ways, I'm just zeroing in on this one, God still speaks to us and it could be, do I go to this school? Do I go to that church? Do I marry this woman? Do I make that move? It's also a, a word of warning. Avoid this situation. Avoid that temptation. Avoid that sin. Don't walk in this path, but walk in that path. The word of God still speaks today. And if we would read it, we would hear it, and we could heed it. The word of God also, though, fills Elijah. If you were here last week, I mentioned how the fact that uh, when Elijah spoke, it was God that spoke. When you read the, the life of Elijah, he rarely speaks by himself or for himself. What we hear him doing is speaking the words of God in different situations. Elijah was a prophet. He was a spokesman for God. And so what Elijah said, God said. So think about this for a moment. If Elijah went into hiding, then what would go into hiding with him? The word of God. When Elijah was told by God to go into hiding, what God was actually doing was he was removing the word of God from the people of Israel. And I think that's the main point of this text, or one of the main points. This is not God's protection program. This is the withdrawal of God's word from the people of Israel. The bringer and bearer of God's word is now withdrawing from the people. The disappearance of Elijah spells the absence of God's word from the life of Israel. Israel's judgment is not only drought, which was uh, uh, predicted by God and uh, said by God in Deuteronomy chapter 28, but it was also the silence of God upon them. So this withdrawal, this sending of Elijah into hiding was actually the first act of judgment that we see in this text. And what a terrifying word 
it is. Some of you who are familiar with the minor prophets are familiar with Amos, and he speaks of such a time. Amos said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Just as God can shut the heavens so rains don't fall and the ground so dew doesn't rise up, God can say, my word will be silenced. And this is what Amos prophesied. This is no trifling matter. If you read the life of Samuel in the early days, he lived in days when God was silent initially. He was called to minister in a time when a word of God was rare. Elijah was now hiding, and the word of God was hiding with him. Is this an issue today? Is this possible today that God can send a famine of his word amongst his people or amongst a community or a country? Think about it. Ahab had the word of God, and Eddie didn't care about it. We have Bibles, but we don't read them. We have Bibles, but we act as though they're simply the words of men, not the words of God. Therefore, we can discard them at will. We have Bibles, but we don't trust the words. We have Bibles, but they're not the content of our preaching and our teaching. We have the Word of God, but it has little influence on our private lives or our public lives. Why is that so? Because even in the midst of Bibles galore on our computers and on our cell phones, if our hearts are heart or if we will refuse to listen, God can send a famine on us by which we cannot hear the word of God any longer. Words, words, words. Some of you may be familiar from that quote. It's from Hamlet. And another character asks Hamlet, what book are you reading? To which he replies, words, words, words. It's his despondent reply when he's asked that question. Surely the book says something. But as Hamlet was finding out, that something was meaningless. These words were just syllables of sound. They were uh, splashes of ink on a paper. When our Bibles or your Bible becomes to you just words, 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 then maybe God has sent a famine for his word into your life. Just maybe it's the judgment of God because you have refused to listen. Maybe, just maybe, God has hidden his word from you in plain sight. This is the reality, I think, of some even in this room today. You have had God's word in your hand. You have read God's word in the past. You have heard God's word proclaimed. But you don't hear him. You won't hear him. You can't hear him. And while Shakespeare might have written words, 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 we say blah, blah, blah. There's a famine for the word of God. Not only is the word of God central in this passage, but This passage illustrates, I think, the diversity of God's servants. I have for a long time, and I continue to be, drawn to the topic of the sovereignty of God. I find the sovereignty of God 
exposed on every page of the Bible. Everywhere I look, everywhere I read, I, I'm reminded again that God is sovereign. That God is in control of this whole world, this whole universe of, of the big things and the little things. You can't control the big things if you don't control the little things. God is in control of absolutely everything and everyone. And a text like this fills me with wonder. It affirms my trust and my confidence in God, even though I still have some big questions and some little questions as I wrestle with the reality and the understanding of the sovereignty of God. As I see it, and I can't escape it. This world is God's world. I can't see it any other way. And I believe with all of my heart, with all of my mind, and with all of my soul that as John and Peter prayed, and as they thanked God for deliverance that they experienced, it was because they understood that God created this world and everything in it. And as they were released from prison and they went back to the people who had been praying, it says they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Do you understand what that is? That's an expression on their part that God is sovereign. That is an expression on their part that there is not an atom or a molecule in this world that acts on its own outside of the control of God. That God made everything, that God controls everything, that God directs everything. And I am one who believes that this world did not evolve, that the world just not, did not just spring into action, but this world has been created by a divine word of God. He spoke and this world came into existence. And because of that, this world has to serve its creator. This world world does whatever its creator tells them to do. And we see that in a text like this today. He commands and controls creation. He commands the wind and the rain. He commands the sun and the stars and the moon. He commands the animals that fill this earth, that fills the heaven, and that fills the sea around us. And yes, God commands each one of us here today. God's hand is never stayed. His options are never limited. His power is never constricted. He does what he pleases in heaven and on earth. Loved ones, this is why we can pray with confidence. Why bother praying to a God who can't do anything? Why bother praying to a God who can't calm the sea if we're out on the sea and we think we're going to sink? Why bother praying to a God who uh, can provide for us if God has no control of the economic system around us? Why pray to a God who can heal us if God has no power to heal us? Makes no sense at all. What gives prayer power is the fact that God has the power to answer our prayers. And he has the power to answer our prayers because he is sovereign over heaven and earth and this universe. How is Elijah going to survive this famine? This is not make-believe stuff. You know, I, I know some people come to the Old Testament and they come to stuff like this, and that's just all fairy tale fluff kind of stuff, Paul. Absolutely not. I've never had ravens feed me, but I have had God's servants feed me. I have... Uh, um, experience the incredible provision of God by diverse servants of God in my life. I have seen and I have heard of miracles of God. I have no doubt in my mind that what is presented here is history and it is God's way in the world in 850 BC. And so here, God commands the ravens. 
the animals, the birds of the sky, just as God commanded a ram to run through a thicket and get stuck, just as God commanded a donkey to open its mouth and speak, just as God commanded a fish to swallow Jonah, just as God commanded a fish to be caught and have a a coin in its mouth to pay taxes. Just as God commanded fish to be on one side of the boat and not another side of the boat. God commands even the nature around us and it obeys him. And so here, he commands the ravens. And not only does he command the ravens, but notice he directs them to bread. Well, who's bread? Ravens don't have ovens, do they? And so where do the ravens get the bread from? Well, obviously, they've got to find somebody who's cooking bread somewhere, who's leaving it out somewhere to cool in the, in the, in the, in the breezes that are blowing by, and they steal the bread and they take it home. Where do they find the meat? Well, God has to find them meat somehow, and I don't want to necessarily think that Elijah's eating roadkill all the time, but whatever's happening, they're bringing the food to Elijah. So not only is God commanding the ravens, but he's also providing the ravens with a source to get the food. And he's also constraining the raven's natural desire to eat it. Have you ever gone camping and you've caught a bunch of ravens and they take your loaf of bread and you say, bring that back. God is sovereign. And he commands even the ravens who are unclean birds to provide for his profit. And then there's no trouble with the food supply. God could keep the ravens coming back and back, but in God's sovereignty, he dries up the brook. So what does God do? He sends his prophet to a widow. Why? Because he has commanded another servant to provide for Elijah. Verse 9 is almost funny. It's almost comical when you understand the context of the time in which this was written. This is no slight um, please to any here who are widows. This is just the text. But here you have a widow. And in these days and these times, if you were a widow, you were impoverished. You had no land. You had no claim to land. You had no um, husband's insurance policy. You couldn't go to school and upgrade your skills so you could open a bakery or open a skill. If you were widowed in those days, you were impoverished. And so God sends Elijah to a widow to sustain him. And you think, really? That's the last person in the world that I would ever turn to in order to meet my needs. So we have an unclean bird and we have an unlikely woman and yet these are the servants of God to meet the need of the prophet of God. The sovereignty of God, loves ones, reminds us and assures us that God is never at a loss to provide us with what we need. And then there's the extent of God's reach. And by reach, I mean both his spiritual reach and his geographical reach. Notice what God says to Elijah. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. What's the first clue in this text that Zarephath might not be the best place to go? If you're listening as Derek read, is there a clue in that text that would suggest to you, really? What's the place Sidon? 
You remember that Jezebel's father was, was Ethbaal. And Ethbaal was king over who? Sidians. He was also king over Phoenicia. He's also described as king of Tyre. But Tyre and Sidon were both part of the realm of Phoenicia. It was right smack dab in the middle of Jezebel's home country. The place where Baal was worshipped. That's where God sends Elijah. Right in the heart of hell. If Brett Eldridge were wooing Jezebel in those days, he might have sang, Take me a long way around your town. Show me the field where you danced with Baal and the great place where your daddy worshipped. This was right in the heart of Baal worship. And who knows, maybe her dad had a cabin on the beach at Sidon. And this widow was a Baal worshiper. She wasn't a worshiper of God when Elijah first ran into her. And so if we're on the theme of God's witness protection program, we could say, well, God was hiding Elijah in plain sight now, right under her nose, so to speak. But if we're back on the theme of the withdrawal of God's word, then what we are actually witnessing here is the second act of God's judgment on Israel. God reaches into Zarephath geographically. It's a reminder that our God, the God of the Bible, the God who made this world, is not like the gods of so many people in this world that are boundaried by geographical borders. God is not some limited deity who once he gets to the border of BC has no power in Alberta because after all, that's agricultural country. God only works in forests. You might think that when you're, oh no, I better not go down that road. I'm going to get myself in trouble. But you understand what's going on here also? Remember I said last week that the, the book records historical events in 850, um, but it also was not written completely until 550 to the people who were where? In Babylon. Here is a reminder that even if you are far away in Babylon, God can find you and help you. We see that in the book of Daniel. God was not limited because all of a sudden his people were no longer in Jerusalem and Israel, that now they were in Babylon. We see it in Esther. No, God, God's reach is beyond any physical border that we might set up. But it also demonstrates to us the spiritual reach of God. For this unnamed widow will soon find herself among the likes of Rahab and Jethro and Ruth and Naaman. Gentiles who would prepare the way for our understanding of what happened in the book of Acts when all of a sudden Gentiles from all over the known world were, were, were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. It was a day in which God would grant even the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. Here is an incredible story how one of, how one of Baal's subjects would put her trust in God's word and would experience his daily provision. Not only physically, but I believe spiritually. I indicated this was the second act of God's judgment. The first act was to withdraw his word. The second is to withdraw his blessing and his grace. In other words, there would be a famine of the grace of God 
in Israel now. Why is it that Elijah would pass through the whole land of Israel and make his way to Zarephath? I think this is an indication that God is removing his blessing from Israel. This was an act of his judgment on them. They would not listen to God, and so God would go elsewhere. This is how the Bible talks, though, in other places. When Paul was going to the Jews all over Asia, he would start first with the Jews, and they just continued to reject him. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary then that the word of the Lord first be spoken to you, the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Paul had given the Jews ample opportunity to trust Christ. He was occupied with the word, it says, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said, Behold, blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. For now on, I will go to the Gentiles. I think that's what this text is saying. That if you reject and you refuse God long enough, he will leave you to yourself. Now, just so you don't think I'm making that up, this is how Jesus interprets this particular circumstance. If you go to Luke chapter 4, you find Jesus talking to the people in Nazareth, and they had no room for Jesus. They wouldn't listen to him. They wouldn't believe him. And so Jesus articulates to them what a prophet might do as a result of rejection. And he uses this example of Elijah going to the widow in Zarephath to make his point. He says the threat is that those closest to Jesus, this is what Jesus is saying, may miss God's blessing while others far away will receive it. The days of Elijah were not only days of a spiritual famine and judgment brought on by the unfaithfulness to God, but it was also days in which God removed his grace from the people and sent it to a widow in Zarephath. I think what Jesus is saying in Luke 4 and what God is wanting us to hear in Second or First Kings 17 is that a lack of faith may alienate you from God. Rejecting a prophet is risky business. Continuing to refuse the grace of God is a dangerous path. The choice was Israel and Israel's and they paid a heavy price for refusing to listen to God. This was a low point in his, Israel's history. And during that low point, where did God's prophet minister? Outside of the country. I do think there is a reminder here that if you refuse God long enough, at some point, he will pass you by and he will go elsewhere. The consequence of rejecting Jesus and of God may be that God will just leave you alone. It's a sobering reminder that if you continue to refuse the word of God, God may withdraw his light from you and allow you to walk in the darkness that you prefer. So there's a judgment in this passage of God removing his word from the land and there's a judgment of God removing his grace from the land. 
Finally, there's the challenge of God's demand. In verses 8 to, or verses 9 to 16. Put yourselves in Elijah's shoes. Do you think it would have been easy for him to obey the word of the Lord that came to him? Zarephath, you've got to be kidding God. Of all the places you could send me, you want me to go where? Do you know where that is, God? And a widow? You're going to have a widow sustain me for any length of time? What's more, do you think you could have done what Elijah did? Walked up to a widow and asked her for a drink of water and then pushed and said, can you give me something to eat? And then when she replied, well, this is all I've got and after I eat this with my son, we're going to die? And say to her, well, give me that. And by the way, God will provide for you. You think it was an easy thing of Elijah to obey the word of the Lord? But Elijah was gentle with her. He was kinder. I don't detect in here any harshness, any arrogance, any pride. What I do see is obedience in him. He's gentle and kind. He speaks the word of God to her. It's a beautiful principle here because he speaks the word of God to her. And all of a sudden, as he spoke God's word to her, her heart opened. It's like that's the moment at which God's word and her faith were combined to open her eyes to see the beauty of God. And loved ones, isn't that what Paul says to us in Romans Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. As Elijah spoke the word of God to her, that God would provide for her, faith welled up in her, and she believed that word. He says, don't be afraid. It's one of God's most settling addresses, I think, to his people. The experience of fear and anxiety is common in the world in which we live today. It's also common in the Word of God. It is written all over the pages of the Word of God. And in fact, some of you may know, and I know David Evans encourages us again and again as he comes in to pray for us. One of the most, and in fact it is the most frequent exhortation in the Bible is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now this shouldn't sound like what's wrong with you anyhow. That's certainly not what those of us who are parents mean when we talk to our child who's frightened and says, Daddy, I'm afraid. Really? Buck up. No, we say, I'm here. Come sit with me. Come lie in our bed for a little while. It's okay. The house isn't going to fall down in this windstorm. Don't be afraid. I think one of the things that we need to learn, especially those of you here who suffer particularly with anxiety and fear, is to grow in calling out to God in the midst of your anxiety and your fear. I think at its core, anxiety is less about our circumstances and more about relationship. In other words, is there what we're asking when we're afraid and when we're full of anxiety, is there anyone here that can help me? Is there anyone here that's aware of my needs? Is there anyone here that can come alongside of me? Or am I all alone in this? Anxiety is not so much 
created by the circumstances around us as it is by the fact that we're unsure of the relationship with the God to whom we belong. We need to talk less to ourselves when we are filling with anxiety and more to God. This is what God says to the widow and what God says to you. Do not be afraid. Now, put yourself in the widow's shoes. If she had any. I wonder if she had any. Her initial response was something like, well, your God may live, Elijah, but I'm preparing to die. And as I already mentioned, it's quite amazing, though, how quickly her heart opens in response to the word of God. She believes the word that Elijah speaks to her from God. She believes that God will do what he promises. She acts in faith on that belief. And I believe that that's when she entered into the kingdom of God. That's what faith is, loved ones. You hear a word about Christ and his saving power in your life. You believe that Christ is who he says he is and he can do what he says he can do. And you trust. You put your belief in what Christ says he can do and you will be saved. That's what faith is. Faith requires that you trust God's word. I was reminded also in this, uh, and I've been thinking about this quite a bit this past week, this last little bit. The, f the first is simply this. What, what God demands, he will give back without measure. Have you ever wondered um, and thought, God, I can't do that. God, this is my last hundred bucks. I can't, I can't give that away. God, this is, this is the, the, the last um, bit of this that I have, I, I can't give that away. I don't know about you, but I have never, ever been let down by God. In fact, I have never received back from God just what I gave him. Rather, I have received back from God blessings overflowing. And you see that in the life of this widow. What did God ask her? He says, give me one meal. Give me one piece of bread and give me one um, uh, uh, meals worth of oil. And she did that. And what did God do? He gave her bread and oil till the famine ended. 400 days, 500 days. She gave him one portion. He gave her hundreds of days worth of provision. We need to remind ourselves of this, loved ones. When you're afraid to do what God asks you or when you're stingy with what God asks you to give, and again, this is not a way of saying, well, if I give to God, then he's going to do all of this for me. That's not understanding this text right. It's just simply reminding yourself that God will never let you down, that God's resources are never, and are never at a, a loss to meet what you need, and God in his generosity and in his grace will pour out on you more than you could ever imagine as you respond to him in obedience. And think about this miracle also. God could have had somebody pull up in a wagon and said to the widow, here's a hundred pan bag of flour. And then a, another person going by and jumps out of their wagon and they've got a hundred gallons of oil and said, here you go. And for the next year and a half, this woman would have had all the oil and all the bread that she would have needed. But rather, God chose to meet her need day by day. I'm still torn 
if I'm honest with you, which I prefer. I sometimes think most of us prefer to live in the first scenario where we really don't have to trust God because we've got everything that we need, but I will trust God. But here, God chose to repeat this miracle of provision to this widow and Elijah and her son every day. Every day when she woke up. I bet you there were some days she woke up and think, I think it's dried up today. And when I made that meal last night, I got the last drop out of that jug and I don't think there's going to be anything this morning when I get up. But every day, this woman experienced anew the mercies of God. God didn't give her a jar that overflowed, but rather he gave her a jug that never became empty. And my, my head went and my heart went to the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Our Father in heaven, give us our year's supply of bread. It's not, is it? It's Father in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Supply my need today, Father. Let me see your mercies anew today, Father. And as opposed to peering into my pantry that is stocked until Thanksgiving and knowing that my investments will provide for the next 20 years, and to be sure, and I want you to hear this, to have a full pantry and have investments for 20 years is just as much God's mercy to you every day as is having nothing for tomorrow and depending on it. But there is something beneficial in our lives at various seasons, is there not? To actually seeing and needing God to provide for your needs daily. To knowing that if God does not show up, you will go to bed hungry. If God does not show up, you won't be able to pay your bills at the end of the week. There's something wonderful about being able to say as you get up in the morning, God, I need a new mercy from you today. There's something wonderful about laying your head down on a pillow at night and saying, Father, thank you for meeting my need today. You are a gracious God. I understand that this was neither the widow's nor Elijah's experience for the rest of their life, but it was their experience for a portion of their life. And I believe that it built in them a confidence and a trust about their God that having two years supply of oil and bread would have never done. The challenge of God's demand. What has God been asking of you? What has God asked you to give him? The extent of God's reach. I hope you're encouraged to know that if you're praying for a son or a daughter, a wife or a husband, an uncle or an aunt, a friend that is around the world, that God is not restricted to Parksville that God can reach even to the farthest corner of this world and bring his word to somebody that they might have faith. Or the flip of this side, are you at risk of having refused God so long that he will bypass you with his grace 
and take it elsewhere. The diversity of God's servants. Have you seen the diversity of God's servants in your life? Are you panicking because God is not providing for you in the normal way, whatever the normal way is? Or do you have such a confidence in God that you're ready for a surprise? You're able to say, God, I I don't know how you're going to do this, but I need you, and I need you to help me provide for my need. And finally, the centrality of God's word. Are you experiencing feast or famine? When you come to the word of God, do you hear God's word and God's voice and see Christ? Or do you hear blah, blah, blah? I think we do live in a time where there's a famine for the word of God. That famine may be affecting some of you that are even here today. Where it's possible that because of repeated rejections of God's word, It means nothing to you anymore. What I would say is it's the mercy of God that you are here today. Don't leave here saying blah, blah, blah. Leave here rather saying today I will open my heart to God. I will listen and I will obey. Father, we thank you for your word today as it comes to us uh, through the circumstances and the times of the people of Israel and the prophet Elijah. I don't know what's in people's hearts, Father. I don't know where they are with your word or with your grace. I don't know where they are with an understanding of your sovereignty, but you do and your spirit does. So in a way that is unique to each of us, take this word and make it bear fruit. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.